Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 884. You will remember that in this section of Luke's Gospel, we, we have seen it begin with Jesus' anguished prayer in the garden when He prayed to His Father, if at all possible, remove this cup from Me. Of course, we know that His Father chose not to remove the cup. If Jesus was going to save His people from their sins as He came to do, He had to drink the cup. He had to obey even to the point of death. And that is exactly what we have seen Him doing from that point forward, beginning with His betrayal and arrest, followed by His sham trials before Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod, and ultimately resulting in His crucifixion at the hands of the Roman state between two other criminals. Every step of the way, Jesus has been moving forward in faithful obedience. And in this text before us this morning, we will see Him finally arrive at His destination. In these verses, we will witness His death. Let us read it together. Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 44. This is the very Word of God. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, we come before You humbly asking that You would give us eyes to see, that You would give us ears to hear, that You would give us a heart to believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ here this morning. Father, as we see him die, may we understand the reason for his death. May we understand what it is that he has accomplished. And by your grace, Father, may we rest in his finished work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. No one knows for certain how many people the Roman Empire crucified. There was one occasion on which 5,000 were crucified in a day, another on which 
6,000 were crucified. How many did suffer this same fate? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions. We, we simply don't know. And we, we don't even know how many were crucified in and around Jerusalem. What we do know is that even on this day, when Jesus is being crucified, He is not the only one being executed. All of the Gospels have told us that, that Jesus was crucified along with at least two other men. And therefore, from one perspective, there is nothing unique about Jesus' death. He was just one among many executed by the Roman state. To an uninformed bystander, his death would have looked like just the thousands of others that they may have seen. But of course, his death was different, unique even. For his death was the sacrifice by which the sins of his people were covered. The sacrifice by which atonement was made. And Luke helps us to see this. He, he helps us to see the unique character of what is going on here by recording for us three details of his last hours. And I want us to look this morning more closely at each of those details. So first, we see that, that Luke tells us that from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that is from, from 12 o'clock noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness over the whole land. We don't know for certain what Luke meant by the whole land, but, but certainly the, the darkness must have covered at least all of Jerusalem, if not all of Israel. And this wasn't merely a, a midday storm or, or some sort of fog that rolled in. We've had a number of dreary days this past week, days in which it was dark, if not at least dim, in the middle of the afternoon. That's not what Luke is, is talking That's not the, the sort of darkness that he is describing. What Luke describes for us here is, is clearly a supernatural darkness. There's probably something like the darkness that the Egyptians experienced before the tenth and final plague of the Exodus. Moses described that darkness as a darkness to be felt. I suspect that's something like what those in Jerusalem experienced on this day. It was a, a darkness to be felt. It was a supernatural darkness. There was nothing natural about it. And when there is such a supernatural darkness, we may know that God is speaking, that, that He is speaking through the darkness. One commentator puts it this way, as the crucifixion proceeds, the heavens begin to comment. But what exactly is being said? What does this darkness mean? When you have a, a symbol like this, when you, when you have a, a symbolic reality, it's always helpful to, to look back into the Old Testament and see how was this understood then. And of course, the Old Testament prophets can help us. Listen to the words of Amos. The prophet Amos writes, And on that day, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's judgment, on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. 
I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning of an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. So Amos tells us that, that on the day of God's judgment, the day when his wrath is poured out upon sin, on that day the sun will go down at noon and there will be darkness in the middle of the day. Joel, another Old Testament prophet, uses similar language to describe the, the day of God's judgment. He writes, Blow your trumpet, Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick Darkness. A day, he goes on to say, when the sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars will withdraw their shining. So again, the, the day of God's judgment, the, the day when His wrath is, is poured out against sin, is a day of darkness and gloom. A day when the sun and the moon and the stars will all withdraw their shining. We see it a third time in the prophet Zephaniah. He writes, Be silent before the Lord your God, for the day of the Lord is near. So again, he's, he's describing the day of the Lord. He's describing the, the day of the Lord's judgment. And here's how he describes it. He says, The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish. And I will make that day a day of devastation, a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And so again and again throughout the Old Testament, we, we see this imagery used. We, we see the Old, the Old Testament prophets referring to the day of God's judgment as a day of darkness. A day when the, the sun will withdraw its shining. A day when it will be dark even at noonday. A day when the light of the sun will be blotted out. A day when there will be supernatural darkness. It would seem then that the, the darkness that Luke is describing here is communicating to us something about what is happening as Jesus hangs upon the cross. It is, it is teaching us the true significance of what might otherwise appear to be just another crucifixion. It tells us that Jesus is not only suffering at the hands of Rome, he is suffering the holy wrath of God. As Jesus hangs upon the cross, the darkness descends that we might know that in His death, the wrath of God is being poured out. Now, I know that some, maybe even many today, recoil at this idea. They, they recoil at the idea of God's wrath. I think the very idea of God having wrath makes him seem mean and, and petty. I read an article just this last week in, in which a man espoused that he could no longer believe in the God of the evangelicals. This mean and petty God. Why? Because he believed in a God of love. 
And for him, the the two were irreconcilable. They could not be brought together. It is not possible to believe in a God of love and to believe at the same time in a God of wrath. And I wonder how many are here this morning who who think this way. Who who, who think this way even though they might know better. That's where I sometimes find myself. In my humanity, I I understand. I I understand this this reluctance to think that God would really take sin all that seriously. That he would really treat it like that big a deal. I, I wonder why God can't just leave us alone and let us live the way we want to live. I I feel that in my flesh. But my flesh is a liar. The truth is that God would not be good if he did not hate sin and pour out his wrath upon sinners. I know that's not the way we normally think, so let me me say it again. God would not be good if he did not hate sin and pour out his wrath upon sinners. I don't know how many of you follow college football. I suspect many of you do. We are actually in the South. So, uh, but you, you may have heard the story. This, this week, Urban Meyer, the coach of the Ohio State football team, maybe the second best coach in all of college football, a, a, a coach who has brought victory and money to that university, he was suspended from duties this week because it came out that he knew about an incident of domestic abuse committed by one of his coaches and did nothing. Now that story may prove to be false. I don't pretend to know the details. That's what's being reported. That's why he was suspended. But here's the thing, whether it's true or not, the fact that Ohio State took that step illustrates the point. The outrage over Meyer's alleged inaction proves that we know and that we believe that sin is evil. We know and we believe that sin harms and destroys. And therefore, we know and we believe that sin is to be hated. And, significantly, that it is to be punished. To know one of your coaches is abusing his wife and do nothing is reprehensible. We know that to be true. If Urban Meyer did that, then he is not a good man. It's that simple. And he does not deserve to be leading men playing college football at Ohio State. Well, in the same way and for exactly the same reasons, God would not be good if he did not hate and punish sin. He would be like Urban Meyer or like Joe Paterno or like any number of others who have turned a blind eye to the evils that they know are being committed around them. We do not honor such men for their loving tolerance. We condemn them as unloving and callous. But it's not just that God would not be good. (laughs) It's also true that there would be no good news. There would be no gospel if God did not hate and punish sin. 
Think about it. What is your hope for the future? Your, your hope for the future is that one day God will rescue you from this present evil age. He will rescue you from this age that is marred by sin and subject to futility. An age in which we still have to deal with failing bodies and broken relationships and the thorns and, and thistles that seem to infect everything. We hope one day to be set free from all this. We hope one day to, to come into a kingdom where things are as they are supposed to be. We hope one day to be set free from the ravages of sin. But the only reason that you have that hope, the only reason that you can look forward to a future where things are put right, is because we believe in a God who hates sin and has promised to do something about it. If God is simply going to overlook, if he is simply going to ignore, if he's simply going to turn a blind eye, then the best that we can hope for is this life forever. And that's not much of a hope. And so, if God doesn't hate sin, there's no gospel. There's, there's no hope of, of a future in a world put right. But here's the problem. On the one hand, there could be no gospel without God's hatred of sin. But on the other hand, it appears that there could be no gospel with his hatred of sin either. Seems kind of like we're in a lose-lose situation. If God doesn't hate sin, we are doomed to live in a sin-torn world for, for all of eternity, a, a world full of violence and destruction and, and death. But if God does hate sin, and if he promises to deal with it decisively, then we, we are doomed to be wiped away with the problem. For we are sinners justly deserving of God's wrath. We are those who have failed to honor Him as God and give Him thanks. We are, are those who have, who have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have too often acted in malice. We have too often taken for ourselves rather than sharing with others. We have too often broken our promises and twisted the truth to advance our own interests. We have too often lived as if our rights and wants were supreme. So you see the problem. If God doesn't hate sin, we have no hope. But if He does hate sin, we have no hope. This is our, this is our dilemma. But when you begin to see it, when you begin to understand the lose-lose situation that we are really in, it is at that moment that you are prepared to see the wonder of the cross. For as I said, the darkness that descends as Jesus hangs upon the cross is the sign that God is pouring out His holy wrath. The wrath that makes Him good. The, the wrath that promises a world put right. He is pouring out that holy wrath as Jesus hangs upon the cross. But notice, He is not pouring it out upon sinners. At the cross, God's holy wrath is being poured out upon the sinless one. His wrath is, is being poured out upon the one man in all of history who did not deserve it. On the cross, Jesus was drinking the cup of God's judgment. That was poured for us. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath 
so that all who believe in Him, all who receive Him as Lord and rest upon Him as Savior, that all of His people might instead drink the cup of His blessing, the very cup that we will come to this table to to drink later in this service. In the words of John 3.16, Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath so that all who believe in Him might not perish but have eternal life. That's the message of the darkness. On the cross, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Christ suffered and died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And really, that's the the next point. That's the point driven home by the the next detail that that Luke mentions. It's not just that, that Jesus endures the cross, but He endures the cross and He drinks the cup of wrath that He might bring us to God. Look with me at verse 45. Luke writes, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The the curtain that Luke refers to is almost certainly the curtain in the temple, the the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, also called the the holy of holies. And you may remember that that holy place, that most holy place, the the holy of holies is where the the Ark of the Covenant was housed. It was the, the Ark that was called the footstool of God's throne, that that resided in the most holy place. And therefore, to enter the the holy of holies was to enter into the very presence of the almighty King of kings. And for that reason, no one was allowed to do it. No one except the high priest on the Day of Atonement ever entered into that room, into the most holy of holies. And when Jesus died upon the cross, that curtain, which was as thick as a man's hand, some some seven inches thick, that curtain was torn in top, Matthew, Matthew tells us, from top to bottom. The significance is not hard to see. As Jesus dies, His death effectively opens the way into the very presence of God. That's what's going on here. Jesus is is enduring the curse that he might bring us to God. Think about the the symbolism of the temple. The the temple and the tabernacle before it, they they symbolize to us two things. They they symbolize to us, first, the presence of God. After all, this is is God's house. It is in the midst of his people. When the the Old Testament people would would, uh, set up camp, they would set up with the tabernacle right in the middle. Later on, when the the permanent structure of the temple was built, it was built in the capital city. Here is the, the sign that God dwells among his people. But the temple did not only picture the presence of God, it also pictured the inapproachability of God. After all, there were all kinds of rules limiting access. Only the the clean could come. And if you've read through the Old Testament recently, or if you were in my class on Wednesday night, you know there were all kinds of rules about what might make you unclean and therefore unfit to enter into the throne room of God. And furthermore, not only was it only the clean who could come, but the clean could only come with blood. And again, there were all kinds of rules about how the clean might bring their sacrifices and how those sacrifices were to be conducted. 
And not only could the clean only come with blood, but they could only come with blood mediated by a priest. It was only through the work of a priest that they could come to worship God. And so again and again, in innumerable ways, the the temple demonstrated that while God was willing to dwell among His people, it was no easy thing to come into His presence. He was holy, and therefore He was anything but safe. To to approach Him was truly a, a fearful and awesome thing. And all of this was seen most clearly in that curtain. In that curtain that strictly prohibited anyone but the high priest to pass, and him only once a year, and only with blood on the day of atonement. We sometimes feel we aren't worthy to come into God's presence. We feel that we are too defiled, too unclean, too broken, too blemished. We we believe that God could never receive us. We we believe that if we came before God in our current condition, it would be a, a great insult, that we would defile His throne room. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I wonder if you've ever felt that you you needed to get your act together before you could possibly come into God's presence. You need to clean yourself up. I suspect you've been there. I suspect you've, you've felt that way. I know that I have. And what I want you to hear me say this morning is that when you feel that way, your instinct is exactly right. You have no business coming into the presence of a holy God. He is a consuming fire. You will be destroyed. Think of Isaiah. Woe is me. I am undone. I am destroyed. For I have been brought into the presence of the holy, holy, holy. That's what we read in Psalm 24. Who is it that can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who is it that can enter into His presence? Only He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That was the message of the temple. That was the message of all the restrictions. That was the message of this curtain. God is here, but we cannot approach Him. We cannot dwell in His presence, for we are sinful But with Jesus' death, the most obvious symbol of God's inapproachability is torn in two. Not because God had changed, not because He had somehow lowered the bar, but because Jesus had endured His wrath. Because Jesus had had taken upon Himself the curse. Through Jesus' sacrifice, the way is now open for all who believe to come boldly into the very presence of God, to come boldly before His throne of grace. Hear how the author of Hebrews puts it. He writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let that just soak in for a moment. Because of what Christ has done, 
Because He drank the cup of God's wrath in your place upon the cross, you now have full, unrestricted access to the throne of grace inhabited by the Lord God Almighty. As Paul says in in Romans chapter 5, because we have been justified by faith through Jesus Christ, we now stand in grace. But there's actually even more. It's not just that we have grace now. It's not that we have grace for this life. But as Jesus shows us in His final prayer, this grace is ours for all eternity. Look with me at verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Jesus knows He's about to die. But he doesn't fear death. He knows that he has obeyed to this point. He knows he will shortly obey even unto death. And he knows that when that moment comes, he will receive his reward. He knows that he will be received into his Father's presence, that He will be given the name above every name, that He will be seated at His Father's right hand. And His vindication, His justification, the Bible even calls it, that is significant for us. Because remember, He stands there in our place. He is our representative. He is our substitute. His glorification is the first fruits of our salvation. Calvin says it this way. He says, in, this, in saying this prayer, Jesus commits not only his own soul, but the souls of all who believe in him to his Father's care. You see, through Christ, We receive hope not only for this life, but for the age to come. We we not only stand in grace now, but as Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 5, we also rejoice in the hope of glory. In Christ, we have been given an imperishable inheritance, undefiled, unfading in glory in that coming kingdom of God. By Jesus' death, Death is defeated. Its sting is gone. Its its victory is overturned. For, For believers now in Christ, death is gain. That's what we saw last week in the the story of the dying thief. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We see then that, that Jesus' death wasn't just another crucifixion. What looked like the Roman state just doing what the Roman state does was, in fact, the climax of God's salvation. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God and thereby opened the way into God's gracious presence, not only for the present, but for all eternity. So let me ask you simply this morning, do you... Believe this. Do you you rest in this truth? For it is this truth that will set you free to face whatever trials may come, whatever tribulations may come your way. 
It is this truth that will enable you, even as Jesus did, to entrust your spirit into your Father's hands. This past week, I had a conversation with a man who, when he found out that I was a pastor, asked me for some advice about how he might talk to his co-workers who were professed atheists. So I asked him how those conversations normally went, and he he said that they repeatedly questioned him, they they repeatedly badgered him, asking him, how can you believe in a good God when the world is the way that it is? And then he told me, the only thing I can think to say to them is look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He thought that was somehow an inadequate answer, and he was hoping that I was going to give him something more sophisticated to say, but all I could say to him is, is, that's the best answer there is. Paul tells us in in Romans chapter 5 that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were his enemies, while we were sinners, while we were under the curse, Christ died for us. And because Jesus obeyed even to the point of death, committing his spirit to his Father's hands, we can do the same. We can follow him now through flood and through fire. Because we know that He has glorified His Son and He will not fail to glorify us together with Him. Because Jesus Christ died for us, we are now free to live for Him. And because this is our blessing in Christ, received by faith alone, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we come before you humbly, asking for grace to believe. Father, in the trials and tribulations of life, we can forget the gospel. We can be blinded to the wonder of who Christ is for us. Father God, I pray that these words and this meal would remind us of the truth, would ground us in it, and would cause us to bring forth the fruit of this gospel to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.